0: Good evening to you. Psalm 19 this evening, our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible tonight, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. and They'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands tonight. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift to you this evening. Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm, and it answers three of the greatest questions that a person can ask in life. Number one, is there a God? And then number two, if there is a God, what is He like? And then number three, is He interested in someone like me? And life really does, in the search for God, really does come down to those three great questions and that's what the psalmist addresses in this psalm. And so in verses uh, 1 through 6, the psalmist addresses the question of, is there a God? And he declares that there is a God by virtue of the fact that all of creation testifies to the existence of God. We're going to see, just as we've seen in previous psalms, that creation speaks of a creator. Creator. And every created thing speaks not only of a creator, but that the creator is always greater than the creation. He's also going to argue for the existence of God from the side of design, that anywhere you see design in the universe, it's an indication of the fact that there is a, a designer behind it and the, design is al- the designer is always greater than the design. And so he, here is this... Our bodies, not only the heavens and the earth, our bodies, a creation, marvels of uh, design. And, and uh, all of it testifying to the fact that we're not worthy of worshiping ourselves or worshiping another mere man, but the one who has made us. And so the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the whole system, how it all operates together, not only speaks of the existence of God, but it speaks of the glory of God, the power of a God who could create all of this, design all of this, and keep everything running the way that he uh, does. And so the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. So here is the design on top of the creation. Day unto day, this creation and this design, it utters speech. In other words, all day, every day, everything that we see created around us, whether you want to look under the microscope or look into the telescope, all of that, all of creation is communicating Every single second of every single day and night all around the world. So day unto day it utters speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. This testimony of creation and design to the existence of God, that message is, there's not a, there's not a single part of the world where Um, like when you got a radio that can't pull in the signal very well. Nowhere is the signal weak. The testimony is as strong in South America as in North America. It's as strong in Australia as it is in Europe. Anywhere you want to go in the whole wide world, this great voice of God is speaking. "...equally loud to the whole world. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth." And so what does the creation and the design speak? What is it communicating in every language, in every part of the world, all day, every day, all night, every night? A simple message. There is a God, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. God's pretty, it, it, it's a pretty big deal in life to miss God and to overlook Him uh, when a person is willing to see, you know, what, you know, what he's given as a witness to himself. And so all of this speaks of the existence of God. And so verses 1 through, uh, well, let's finish it off here. I don't want to cut short here. The psalmist, for he speaks, continuing to speak of this design and of this creation. In them he, that is God, has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Beautiful language for the sunrise, isn't it? And here's the uh, sunrise coming up and like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. I mean, as ready to start the day the sun is, whether we are or not. (laughs) Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other. There is nothing hidden from its heat. And so he just uses one little tiny aspect of creation, the sun, to speak of what it alone communicates every single day. All around the world, once every 24 hours. Someone has said that the sunrise, if the sunrise only occurred once every thousand years, everyone would come out to watch it. But because it happens every 24 hours, we stop being impacted by the magnificence of it, the beauty, the design, the creation of it. And the psalmist is writing so that we don't lose that awe and that reverence and the witness that it is to God. And so, in verses 1 through 6, that answers the question, is there a God? And once a person has settled in their in their mind based upon what God says here, that yes, there is a God, sometimes people say, God, if you're there, you know, say something, communicate something. God says, I'm communicating all day and all night, if you just understand the way that I'm communicating. So he answers the first question, is there a God? And the answer is yes. So it raises then the second question, how in the world do I find out what it is that he is like? And that's why in verses 7-7, Down through 11, he begins to speak about the Word of God because that's the single best place to find out what God is like. So sometimes you read this and he's talking about the creation and then you get into verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect and he starts to talk about the Word of God and you think, what did David do? Did he like sit down and write this and then get up and and he's writing about the creation went in and got a cup of coffee came back and started writing about the word of god and it just seems like it's all disjointed but but there's a there's a, a method in this in his message here because now we accept the existence of god how do we get to know him no better way than through his word and you have one of the finest descriptions of the word of god and all of the bible right here the law of the lord is perfect uh converting the soul and so it Calls men to God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so it teaches us about how all of life. It teaches us about how to live. I don't. I, nobody. You don't have to be a genius to enjoy the blessings of life as God intends it to be. God's provided all of the wisdom in His Word. We just, no matter how simple we are, all we need to do is to uh, enter into it, obey it. And the Ph.D. and the person that hasn't got their GED yet has equal access to the same quality of life in terms of what God has blessed with through obedience to His Word. The statutes, and you notice he's using all these different words for the Word of God, the law, the testimony. Now the statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, and so it it speaks of uh, what is right in life, and giving us instruction in in what is right. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes, and so they uh, the Word of God makes things clear to us that we wouldn't otherwise. Uh, No. And when it talks about the commandment of the Lord being pure, it means that it's completely undefiled. It's perfectly pure. It's not defiled in any way by man's ideas or man's philosophies or man's um, things that he wants to add to the Word of God. This is why it's so silly to me. Sometimes every once in a while you get some prominent pastor who will come on and he'll write some kind of a book and and he doesn't believe the whole Bible. He believes these things, but he thinks these things over here. And now he's replacing the revelation of God, this Bible that has changed lives and eternities for thousands of years. And now he's born of a man and of a woman and from Timbuktu, and he comes into human history and now he knows more than God. He can't even change his own life. He can't even get rid of his own spots as a leper or as a, as a leopard or as a, uh, his sin as a sinner. And now he's smarter than God. And so now this is, God's really wrong in this area. And then I'm going to put my philosophy in, inside of that. And I just think. What, I mean, what in the world is a person thinking that that uh, speaks related to that? Any, anything I would do and explain away a passage from this Bible and then replace it with something that I think from my own mind or my own idea of truth, now I've taken something that's absolutely pure and I have defiled it. I tell you, you stick with the Bible, you know, this other thing, you see, Anybody that thinks they're smarter than God, I'm just—I'm looking for a, a, a bunker that I can be hidden away in when the lightning falls. So the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're always right. They're completely fair. They're more to be desired. Uh, more to be desired are they than gold? Yea, than much fine gold. The Word of God makes us rich. As God is my witness, if someone came to me and said, I will give you all of the gold in the world, but you can't read this Bible for the rest of your life, I'd turn my back on that gold for this Bible because what it does is in our lives and what it does in our life i couldn't get away from for 48 hours without destroying my life it is very valuable and it makes us infinitely rich it is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb it brings joy and pleasure to our lives as well moreover by them your servant is warned the word of god warns too people don't like warning today do they Oh boy, you gonna warn me about there's actual right and wrong, and you warn me not to do uh, to do wrong. Well, who who raises a kid that doesn't warn him related to not to do wrong? We're just big kids. Listen, listen, your kids and your grandkids may be impressed with you. I'm not impressed. I'm you. We need warning and spankings and everything else, just the way the kids do. I'll tell you. And the Word of God provides that warning. That we need, and in the keeping of them, there is great reward. And so, this is a, a, a fabulous, a fabulous life that we get to live. And it's through the Word of God that we come to know what God is like. And so, is there a God? Yes. How can I get to know Him? Through His Word. And then, the third great question is He interested in having a relationship? with someone like me. And that gets answered in verses 12 through 14. Who can understand his errors, David writes. And so as he is confronted with the existence of God, he's confronted with the beauty of God, the wisdom of God from the Word of God, then the person that's on this journey becomes conscious of the fact that I am, I am a sinner and I am wanting a relationship with this holy and this pure God. So he said, who can understand his errors and cleanse me from secret faults or the confession of sin? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. And then, So he seeks God, approaches this God, Revealed in creation, revealed in the Word of God, and he approaches this God as a sinner. And then in verse 14, he approaches the Lord. Uh, as salvation occurs kind of between those verses. He approaches the Lord now as a saint. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And then notice that next word, my strength and my Redeemer, And so he closes then the psalm in relationship with this God. So the creation around us speaks of the power of God. The word of God testifies to the wisdom of God. The salvation of God testifies to the love of God. So this beautiful, beautiful psalm that answers the three great questions in life in a way that <laughs> every sinner dreams of having them answered by God. God is a sinner's Savior. And then we go into uh, uh, Psalm 20. And Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are kind of a couplet. They are um, linked together and, and united together. And in Psalm 20, it teaches us the power of encouragement. And specifically, the power of an importance of encouragement of God's people directed toward those that God raises up to be leaders among uh God's people and so it's really psalm 20 is a reminder of God's people and a call to God's people to be great encouragers and great intercessors or prayer prayers for those that are in leadership among God's people or in the body of Christ. And so Psalm 20 records the cry of uh, the people before a battle, and then in Psalm 21 is the record of uh, David's cry uh, to the Lord following that same battle. And so the context is this. The nation of Israel is on the brink of war. So one of their neighboring enemies has attacked them. They need to go to war. And as a result of that, there's the realization that, um, you know, we could be wiped out. I mean, we live in the United States of America. So anytime time we go to war uh, as a nation, we, at least in, in our lifetimes, we have never doubted the outcome. We don't know what it is to go to war and say, this thing could go either way. We've been so militarily superior in all of our lifetimes that we don't, even th- we don't even think in terms that a war could be lost, we could be invaded, we could become the servants of another nation. But the rest of the world doesn't live in that, that kind of, of view related to war. And certainly Israel didn't at that time. So they're going off to war and if David didn't lead the troops to victory and God did not give him favor for that, then it could mean by the end of the day that they are servants to the Ammonites or the Amorites or the Edomites or one of their enemies, the Philistines that was around them. And, and so here is this... The nation is on the brink of war. David stops at the sanctuary in order to pray and offer sacrifices to the Lord before entering in to battle against uh, those uh, who are, are attacking the nation. And the people meet him there at the tabernacle and they meet him when they meet him there at the tabernacle they begin to intercede uh, for David and so the people are a great encouragement to David and they and they write and they cry out to the Lord may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble may the name of the God of Jacob defend you in other words David may the Lord give you victory and may he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion May God just be supernaturally involved in the battle that that you are entering into, and may He remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Selah. And so David had gone to the tabernacle to offer. Sacrifices to the Lord, to honor the Lord, to acknowledge the Lord before going into battle. The burnt offering was an offering of consecration to say, Lord, I am yours, 100%, whatever you want to do in this battle, it's, it's yours, it's your glory, and there was that surrender, and they're just praying that the Lord will remember and honor the sacrifices of David. And they continue to intercede, May God uh, grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill your purpose, again give you victory. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. So they would have these banners that would lead out these, uh, just like we do in, you know, if you watch like Civil War movies and this kind of thing where uh, or documentaries, and they've got the flags of the different regiments and all, they would carry these banners out before them in battle. And so, in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. In other words, Lord, we're doing this in fellowship with you. And may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And then David then answers in uh, verse 6, and and he acknowledges this, uh, the prayers of the people. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from him from uh, his holy heaven, with the saving strength of His right hand, and so David is clearly encouraged by the encouragement of God's people, and he's clearly encouraged um, a, 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 by uh, not only their prayers, the, the encouragement, but also by their prayers. I just I, I don't want to say it in, a, in a way that uh, you know sounds self-serving. I consider myself to be one of the most affirmed people on the face of the planet. You are a wonderful group of people to pastor and to serve and to serve together with. But it is good for us, it's right here in the Bible, to realize that the people that God raises up in the body of Christ to lead, they pay a price for that. And I I don't say to pity them or to pity us for that because a price really needs to be paid because there's so many blessings. Uh, there's such, So much happens between an individual and God in that position. I don't say that it's better than what happens in anybody else's life. It just is what it is. And sometimes it needs to be hard. It needs to be very, very hard. Uh, otherwise, a person can get lifted up in pride and all of these silly things that all of us are prone to. But there is, there is a spiritual warfare for a leader that has a great, great intensity that, uh, never stops. It just never stops. It, it, it can escalate and de-escalate, but there's always that constant kind of hum that is always there. Just the noise. It's just there. And so leaders in the body of Christ really need the prayer and the encouragement of God's people. I think it was Mark Twain who said, I can, He said, I can get along two full months on a good compliment. <laughs> and that's, we'll say, not the compliment, but encouragement. And that's the power of it. In our own, toward one another, in our own lives as well, the power of that. And, and, it's, and they're, they're just men who are in these positions. And I think, too, as it relates to our body, um, you know, not just the senior pastor, but the assistant pastors and the elders and the deacons and all the people that are leading various areas of ministry here in the church and and all the things that they they go through privately. This psalm just kind of lets us realize that's happening and how. Powerful and how important encouragement and intercession is to them. I remember, uh, you know, as it relates to me personally, when we um, first moved into this building and we began the services here and, and all, we hit a block of time. I don't know how long it was. We've been here maybe even for quite a while. And I was getting up in this pulpit in the morning and in in the evening, and it was like I was running through mud. I mean, the spiritual warfare against what was happening in this church, and and it was coming against me in particular while trying to minister the Word, also in sermon preparation and that kind of thing, it was reaching all the way into the pulpit. I mean, it was just getting way too far in than it had any opposition had any right to be coming into at least consistently where the pastor shouldn't be dealing with that degree of warfare in in ministering the word over and over and over again continually. And so today, for instance, on Sunday mornings, there's a group of men and women that are in the prayer room, first service, and they're in the prayer room, second service, and they pray for all of us in this room, including me, and ever since we began that intercession. What I was experiencing for all those months has been gone, and it's been gone for years now. And it's just the power, a witness to uh, Psalm 20 here, the importance of encouragement, the importance of intercession for leaders. David was clearly encouraged by this encouragement of the people. And then this uh, declaration David makes, he says, "...some trust in chariots and some in horses, speaking of their enemy, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Victory lies in His hands." That's who we're going to go out. And they have bowed down and fallen, that is, those that trusted in chariots and in horses, but we have risen and stand upright. So, I mean, he's heading, he's heading out into battle now, come fully charged up in faith. Fear is contagious, but faith is very contagious as well. And it's a powerful thing. And David is really feeling that uh, from the people. And it, it's a good thing. And then both of them unite in verse 9. And they cry out, Save, Lord, may the king. And, and David is happy to acknowledge that the Lord is the king. May the king answer us when we call. And so this great call for help and uh, this great encouragement of the people. And then in Psalm 21 we have the uh, cry of, uh, of David to the Lord following, uh, just thanking the Lord after the battle for answered prayer. So again, the importance of prayer, intercession, the importance of asking. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to ask God too much. Jesus said we can ask. We can ask a lot. And um, and there's a lot that's ours purchased by that blood. And so we can ask anything. Ask and seek and knock and the promises that are associated with that. And so there is the asking. But then here, Psalm 21 reminds us, ask great things, but then when God answers those prayers, it's important to also acknowledge them and to give him thanks. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the requests of his lips. And so now he's returned victoriously in battle, and he thanks the Lord. You answered my prayer, I've been victorious and and come back whole in the battle. For you meet him with the good blessings of goodness. You have set a crown of pure gold upon his head. And this crown speaks of the crown that had been taken off of the head of the king that had led the other uh, opposing uh, army into battle. And so another expression of Of victory that had been given to them. He asked life from you, as David had, asked victory and that God would spare his life in the battle, and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation, honor and majesty you have placed upon him. And so God used David to bring a great victory for the nation. As a result of that, uh, people... uh, Honored David. They appreciated David uh, uh, for what he had done. And then David is very quick to deflect that glory and majesty and honor back to the Lord. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find... All your enemies, your right hand will find those who hate you. And so David now, in the remainder of the psalm, he has experienced this great battle against this uh, nation that has uh, attempted to exterminate God's people and exterminate the nation of Israel. And the, the defeat of the wicked, the defeat of the enemies of God's people makes David begin to then think about how Uh, all of God's enemies are one day going to be defeated by the Lord. And so it's kind of like God God does one thing in our life over here, and it isn't just supposed to stay in that little narrow band. We see the implications of it all across the broadness of our life. And so he realizes that not only did you defeat our enemies here, but it speaks of the fact that there's no future for an enemy of God uh, in in terms of ultimately in human history. God will defeat all of his enemies. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. So the right hand is the hand of power. Uh, you don't want to hate God and then see the right hand of power come toward you. Uh, you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow him, them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from the sons of men, for they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform, and therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string Toward their faces, and then he closes here with uh, just uh, all praise belonging uh, to the Lord, and and they wanted to give it to him again. This expression of thanks: Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. So this beautiful, beautiful psalm of of again just reminds us that God does. Uh, answer our prayers but he does notice when we say thank you it's good it's good manners to write a thank you card and uh, and we want to teach our children and and all how to do that and the importance of that and uh, and then it's good to do the same thing with god to thank him for his blessings then we come to psalm 22 and uh, one of i mean we all of the bible is holy ground And uh, this is this is especially obvious as it relates to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, we have a prophetic description of crucifixion by David, hundreds of years before crucifixion was practiced in human history. And so, uh, the uh, uh, the Persians used crucifixions as a means of execution. In the 6th century B.C., David is writing about a thousand years B.C. And then the Seleucids, they also, following uh, the uh, uh, Persians, they also used it. Then ultimately and most famously, the Romans used crucifixion as a means of 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 capital punishment and a means of death until it was abolished in the Roman Empire in the year 337 A.D. The interesting thing, one of the interesting things about Psalm 22 is it doesn't match anything uh, concerning David's life. You read this psalm and you say, and we have this very detailed history of David's life in the historical books. And you read this psalm and you look at his life and you say, this doesn't describe anything that we know about David's life. The only event in human history that matches the description of what David writes about here in Psalm 22 is, of course, the crucifixion. Of our Lord Jesus, and so in this psalm, we have the Holy Spirit giving David a supernatural revelation into the death of israel 's coming Messiah a thousand years before it took place, and so it gives us insights into the scene of jesus 's crucifixion that aren 't even contained in the Gospels it supplements the Gospels and 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 Psalm 22, in addition to Isaiah 53, the two I would say, in terms of prophetic passages, um, probably the two mountaintop places in all of uh, of the Old Testament, and so. Very, very holy ground and a beautiful, beautiful Old Testament revelation concerning our Savior. He's writing, and they are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We are able to recognize who's being spoken of because we look back through 2,000 years of history and recognize who the Holy Spirit was describing. the Bible, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures. He spoke to the religious leaders of his day. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. And Psalm 22 testifies to him. And the psalm begins with the Messiah crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. As David cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? On the cross of Calvary. And clearly when Jesus cried that out on the cross, he was making sure that we could not misunderstand the fact that Psalm 22 was about him and that he was about to fulfill that Psalm on the cross of of calvary and so uh he this is the cry my god my god why hast thou forsaken you me and why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning oh my god i cry in the daytime but you do not hear and in the night season and am not uh silent and so this um it, the cry of, of Jesus on the cross, this complaint, so to speak, it didn't arise out of Jesus' need to know all of the reasons for God's absence. He, of course, knew all of that. It just, that, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, comes just out of kind of the incomprehensibleness uh, uh, of the event. You think about, and it's one of the most powerful things to me about the cross, is this particular cry of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some forsaking, some shaking, something I wouldn't, you can't define it. There's, there's, there's supposed to be mystery about the things of God, the finite, you and I. We can only follow the infinite so far before we will mar the beauty of the revelation And so all I know is that when Jesus hung on that cross and He, that is the Father, made Him, that is the Son, who knew no sin to become sin, to bear our sin on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him by putting our faith in Him. When He bore our sins on that cross, some forsaking, something happened within the relationship of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that had never happened before and would never happen again. And it's awesome to think about not only what Jesus was willing to endure physically for the forgiveness of our sins, but maybe even just as amazing, uh, just as unspeakable and indescribable is what happened between Him and the Father in terms of fellowship during those hours that He bore our sin on the cross from uh, noon until three in the afternoon. I don't I don't go over a line and say that there was, you, you know, uh, go too far with it because there's a oneness within the Godhead that never ceases. But something of a forsaking took place, and Jesus cries out because... It had never happened before, and all of eternity will never happen again, but had to happen for him to bear my sin on that cross. I'll tell you, I'm ready to have communion right now, just on the basis of verses 1 and 2. And then the Messiah cries out to the Father, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In other words, he's not casting doubt, he's not blaming the Father for the forsaking. He's declaring that the Father has forsaken him because it was the right thing to do. It was the thing that needed to happen as he became sin to become our Savior. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. He said, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me, they ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And so this is prophesying of the mocking of the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus while he hung on the cross. And just as happened a thousand years after David prophesied of it here, Matthew records, and likewise the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders said, "'He saved others, himself he cannot save.'" If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if God will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled with the same thing. He saved others himself he cannot save. No truer words were spoken of Jesus than those words that came out of the mouth of his enemies. He could only save us because he did not save himself and he could have saved himself in an instant from the cross again in the garden of gethsemane when peter tries to defend him from the arrest and jesus said peter don't you know that i could call 12 uh, legions of angels to come and deliver me here a legion of a roman legion was 6000 don't you know i could Call 172,000 angels in an instant here to take care of all of this. And then you realize that one angel on one night, just Angel Bob, not an archangel, not a seraphim or a seraph, uh, whatever, <laughs> just one angel, Alex, wipes out an entire army of 185,000 enemy troops. Jesus was not in any kind of danger. That, that he was not the, that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane or at Calvary was not out of God's control. And, and so here he is, this prophesying exactly what happened to him at the hands of the religious leaders of the Jews. But you, and, and here is the Messiah speaking of the Father's care for him from his birth in, Jeru- in Bethlehem, all the way to the day of his crucifixion. But you are him who took me out of the womb, and you made me trust while on my uh, mother's breasts, and I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help many bulls have surrounded me strong bulls of bashan have encircled me they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion and so he's uh, describing the uh the activity of his enemies around the cross he likens them to wild animals beasts the strong bulls or a roaring lion here he compares the cruelty and the savageness of both Jew and Gentile, involved in his crucifixion on that day. And then he begins to describe his uh, physical uh, torment that he was going through on the cross. Tremendous, priceless revelation. He said, I'm poured out like water. All of his strength gone on that cross. You think about it was... An absolute miracle that he survived the beatings and the scourging that he went through before he was ever crucified. And then to be crucified in that condition. Fully God, fully man, all at the same time. He said, I'm poured out like water. My strength has just flowed right out of me and all my bones are out of joint. And crucifixion would, of course, it was a tremendous pull upon the skeletal structure of the body and, and not only impacting the bones and the joints and, and all of the pain that was associated with that, but he said, my heart is like wax, it is melted within me. And so he's talking about what he was feeling physically on the cross of the bones, but also his internal organs the trauma of what he was experiencing there upon the cross. Now, ultimately, he doesn't die of crucifixion because he, he dismissed his spirit. He'd still be hanging on that cross in Jerusalem today if he did not dismiss his spirit. He said, no man takes my life. I lay it down of myself, and I do it for my friends, speaking of you and me tonight. And, and so, but here he is. This is what was going on. It, it, the, the, the experiencing of the physical hardship. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. You take a piece of pot in that Middle Eastern sun and it, all the moisture is out of it. It's speaking of his exhaustion on the cross. He said, my tongue clings to my jaws, talking about an indescribable thirst. And he said, you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. And the term uh, dog can refer to dogs, but in this context it refers to Gentiles. And so you had earlier the mention of the Jewish religious leaders that would mock him, make fun of his faith in God at the scene of the crucifixion of the Messiah, unthinkable, and yet it happened. And then here now the Jews oftentimes referred to the Gentiles as uh, dogs and, and so it's used in that kind of a way here to speak about the Gentile involvement of the crucifixion of the Messiah, which, of course, in this case was the Roman soldiers that were involved. The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Clearly, crucifixion. He said, I can count all my bones. And his bones are just sticking out against the tauntness of his skin. And they look and they stare at me. And the idea is that these Roman soldiers took great pleasure in humiliating the Jewish king in this way and making fun of his claims. And so they look and they stare at me. And then they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And we remember from the gospel accounts that it was the Roman soldiers who then took what Jesus had that was valuable, which was nothing virtually but his robe. And, and they didn't want to tear the robe because that would obviously lessen the value of it. It's all woven as one piece. So they cast lots for who would get the robe. And that was part of the pay for the Roman soldiers. They got paid what they got paid by Rome. But whatever they could divvy up from whoever they were crucifying, then that was a source of income uh, as well. And, of course, all of this happened at the base of the cross. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O oh, my strength, hasten to help me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then at that particular point, got a, got a moth up here. And at this particular point in verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then the Messiah cries out, You have answered me. And the whole tone of the psalm changes. It hinges on that sentence. And it turns from one of describing the cross to something that's joyous, something that is wonderful, that this Messiah who is going to die upon the cross that death was not going to have the final say concerning that Messiah. And so you have answered me. How did God answer these prayers of the Messiah, of Jesus, on the cross? Not by removing him from the cross before he died, but the Father answered the prayer by means of resurrection. And notice the life of the Messiah on the other side of the crucifixion. I will declare your name to my brethren only a resurrected uh, Messiah can do that. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And so here is this strong pointing to uh, the resurrection within this psalm. You who fear the Lord, praise Him, all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you again the Messiah crying out to the Father, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. And so here is the Messiah declaring the fact that on the other side of this crucifixion, in his resurrection, that he will take part in the assembling together of the saints, just as he's doing here tonight. In in fulfillment of this, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It shall be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he, that is God, has done this. It's a, Jesus spoke seven things while he hung on that cross 2,000 years ago. And the fourth thing that he, he, he uh, spoke on that cross, and it's the only thing that he spoke on, on the cross during his crucifixion that was in the form of a question, was Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Only only one of the statements in the form of a question. And so here is this. Uh, the question is posed in the first uh, verse of of the psalm. And have you ever, you know, wondered what the answer is to that, that great question? My God, my God. When Jesus asked out of the Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we, you go to the Gospels. And you read through the Gospel accounts and there's no clear answer to why the Father would forsake the Son. It's not included in the Gospels. And the reason that it's not included in the Gospels is because the revelation, the answer to that question that begins Psalm 22 is explained and given to us by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Answer number one, verse 22, I will declare your name uh, to my brethren in order to provide salvation to the Jews. Verse 27, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me to provide salvation for the Gentiles, for the whole world? And then number three in verse 30, A posterity shall serve him. It shall be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. And they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the third answer that's given right within the psalm by the Holy Spirit is in order to provide salvation for generations to come after the crucifixion of the Messiah. And that salvation reaches right into this room this evening. That's why he died on the cross to save the Jews, to save the Gentiles, and to save every generation of Jew and Gentile afterward that would put their trust in the uh, Savior that is described in this psalm. It's interesting, too, in the psalm that in verse 6, that the Messiah is described and refers to himself actually as a worm. I am a worm but no man. And the, the worm that's referred to there is a very particular worm. It's called the Coccus ilicus, and it was known as the scarlet worm, about the size of a pea. And the worm would be gathered together in great, great numbers. They would then grind it down and and make a red dye out of it for the purpose of of dyeing garments. And when Jesus declares himself to be uh, no man but a worm, it speaks of his humility in dying on the cross. A worm is kind of the lowest thing in life. And it's a marvel, the place that he was willing to leave heaven, the glory of heaven, to die on the cross. And how could he explain the great gulf between what he once enjoyed and was in the middle of in terms of heaven and how low he was willing to go for our salvation in being crucified on the cross than in the human experience to liken himself to a worm, the great, great distance. And so the Jewish religious leaders and certainly the Roman officials, his death meant nothing more than just the squishing of a worm, really. And I think the mentioning of the worm in this particular worm speaks of Jesus' bloodied condition upon the cross. If you've ever been at a crime scene or you've seen film of that or terrible accident or something like that, that, that cross, that was a very, very messy place. That was a lot of blood that flowed from His body. And there was all over that cross and all over his body from head to toe. He was an open wound. He was exactly like that, that scarlet uh, worm. And we know about this scarlet worm that in order for this worm to reproduce, to bring forth life, it climbs up on a tree all by itself. No one forces it. It willingly lays down its life. Just as Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. If I have the power to lay it down, I'll have the power to take it again. That crimson worm knows that when it climbs on that tree, it will not come down from that tree alive. It knows that, and Jesus knew that. But it climbs that tree in order to give birth to a family. That's its focus the focus of that worm at that moment. And in order to give birth to that family, it has to die. And Jesus knew that he wasn't going to come off of that cross without dying, but he did so in order to birth a family. As Jesus said, as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God. In order for us to become a part of God's family, he did that. John wrote in his first epistle, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Jesus did that as this worm in order for us to become a part of the family of God. And then that worm would then attach itself to the trunk of a tree and it would fix itself permanently and and so firmly upon the tree that it would never leave again. It then lays its eggs, depositing those eggs underneath her body in order to protect them so that they can begin new life. And interestingly, when the worm dies, this crimson red fluid comes forth from her, covers her body, and stains the wood that she is attached to, just as Jesus' blood stained the cross that he was nailed to. And he left that stain, his blood on that, in order to provide his children "...with a new spiritual life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new." And so the beautiful picture of the worm, they would have all recognized what worm was being spoken of, the characteristics of it, and then to be able to look back and see the imagery of it related to the Messiah. And Jesus did all of that, all of that out of the greatness of his love for us. Psalm 22, beautiful psalm. I mean, it's just humbling. It's humbling to think about what the very Son of God was willing to do for a person like me to be saved to become a part of his family. And I know you feel the same way. I'd like the worship team to come forward. And I know we're just about out of time, but I want to spend a moment or two just worshiping the Lord a little bit before we leave and, and giving Him praise just under the beautiful weight and revelation of this beautiful Psalm 22 of our precious Savior.